1: Hi everyone, welcome to our latest episode of the Latin American Studies channel. I'm your host, Minnie Sony, and I'm a professor of Hispanic studies at the University of Delhi in India. Today, we're going to be talking about a book by Professor Lynn Stephen, Titled Stories That Make History Mexico Through Elena Poniatowska's Chronicas, published by Duke University Press 2021. Lynn Stephen is the Philip H. Knight Chair, Distinguished Professor of Arts and Sciences, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Oregon. She was President elect and has been President of the Latin American Studies Association. Her scholarly work centers on indigenous studies and she has authored about 14 books. Her current projects are on the impact of COVID on farmworker families, and another on gender justice for indigenous Guatemalan women. Professor Stephen, tell us about your personal trajectory and how your interest in Mexico and its politics and personalities developed. Sure, thank you
0: very much. First, I want to say thank you, Minnie, for having me on your podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, It's kind of related to my family history. Uh, My parents uh, especially my mother were active with United Farmworkers, and I grew up spending time with Mexican families in and around Chicago, where I grew up, and I I learned Spanish um, through that. I also studied Spanish in high school, um, and began. Uh, I began. I first did some field work as an undergraduate. Uh, in um, Costa Rica and Nepal. And then as a graduate student uh, in anthropology, decided I wanted to go to Mexico. So I uh, began uh, doing fieldwork in Mexico, actually in Oaxaca in about uh, 1984. And through living in Mexico for about a year and a half, that was when I first learned about Elena Poniatowska's uh, work, uh, her books, um, and I've basically had pretty much a second life in Mexico uh, and now Guatemala for at least a month or two a year. My children have been there throughout their childhood. So kind of through that continuous process of uh, doing research, uh, Mexico really became an important part of my life.
1: In your conclusion, you tell us the raison d'être of this book, and I quote, historical moments when the status quo is cracked open, when people take to the streets and demand change, when another future seems possible, are the moments when gifted writers and artists step up. The ways that pandemics, massacres, earthquakes, and broad social movements for change are represented and documented can determine their place in history." End of quote. Elena Poniatowska, according to you, is one such writer who chronicles Mexican history starting from 1968. Tell us about the crónica, this emotional way of writing about politics that Poniatowska first started in 1968, and a little about her life. Thanks.
0: Yeah, the crónica, as I write in the book, actually has a it has a very long history uh, in Mexico, and in fact, I would. Um, Place it as really beginning with indigenous codices, um, which tell kind of history and ancestries and sort of place particular families, particularly royal families and individuals, in a particular context through retelling of events and genealogy. Then, of course, we have the Spanish chroniclers um, who documented from their perspective. Uh, many events. Um, And both um, uh, Elena and other chronicle writers, such as Monsi Weiss, sort of connect their cronicas to these earlier forms, um, especially the the Spanish colonial uh, chronicles. So I think it's a it's a form of storytelling based in, in the case of Elena Ponyatoska, based in real events. Um, and in contemporary chronicles, which other people also before them wrote in Mexico as a genre, it's really a way for people to connect with something that's happening or has happened. Um, and it relies on uh, testimony, sort of individual testimony or collective testimony, recounting events through a sort of personal lens so it gives a personal story, often or different personal stories, connected to a larger set of events or structure or commentary. Um, and Ponyatoska's chronicles, I think, are are unique in the way that they develop character. You know, characters, the individuals in them. Łanczyszyn um, does not. You know, had a very different style. Other writers do, but I think this is a result of her, you know, being a journalist, writing fiction, writing novels, as well as writing these Konica. So um, she's very developed and experienced at writing out individuals and how they see the world and feel the world in ways that really communicate. You know, she, Elena began, uh, Elena was born in France and came to Mexico She has these two sort of royal lineages, one through the Poniatowski uh, family, and she went to uh, school in Mexico and then did a stint at a Catholic girls' school in the U.S., and she began as a reporter. Um, She began in the society pages, and she began interviewing people when she was very young. Um, So she developed, I think, very quickly the ability to talk to people who she had never met, and she's very frank, when she began, knew very little about, um, to get them to talk to her. So she really, I think, developed a set of skills for connecting with people emotionally and engaging with them emotionally, and that translated onto the page. So having done, you know, by the time she writes La Noche de Chate Loco, You know, she's done hundreds, maybe more than a thousand interviews. She's used to writing every day and she she's constantly writing because she's a journalist. Um, So I think that combination of sort of really engaging with people as full fledged humans and being able to communicate that on the page in connection with a larger event or structure or. Uh, piece of history is what makes them very compelling. Uh,
1: Taking off from La Noche de Tlatelolco, you describe how Ponyatauska came into her own as it were after she wrote this book and how her own personal and political trajectory intertwined with Mexico's growing critical public. Tell us how this book on the 1968 student movement has had an intergenerational effect.
0: Well, one of the one of the things I became interested in. I mean, I'm an anthropologist, um, so this is a different kind of, very different kind of book for me. Um, and one of the things I've always been interested in, for example, in studying, I've I've studied a lot of different social movements. I've written about the Zapatista movement in Mexico, written about a very wide ranging social movement in Oaxaca that happened in the mid two thousands. And I've always been interested in how people get engaged in these social movements like how you know how do they know about them how do they remember them and i've interviewed a lot of activists um, in these different social movements and both in the us as well so there's there's sort of intergenerational experiences and memory right if your parents were activists or your grandparents or someone in your social circle then it creates part of kind of a familial, maybe communal community culture that people are socialized in. Now, obviously, some people, many people go off and do very different things. Um, So one of the things I was interested in finding out was who was reading this book, right? It sold a lot of copies. Um, so I did kind of a survey. It's not scientific in any way that I write about in the book. And I just talked to a lot of people who told me they had read her books. When did you read this? Why did you read it? What, what did you take away from it? You know, kind of a little bit of an ethnography of readers. And I tried to do different ages, different generations. Um, and what I found was a lot of people read it in school in Mexico, particularly, Uh, Mexico City, larger cities, many people remembered reading it in school, some people, you know, got it from a relative's bookshelf, but many people, shall we say, from the ages at the time I was doing this of about 24, you know, through 70, reported on the importance of this book, of how it made them really see what happened in 1968 in a different light. Um, because the you know the official story of the government, you know, was that this was provoked by their students or it was inexplicable, and then there was just silence around it for so long. So it made me realize that this book, at least in those circles, you know, had a, a life that was going through different generations, that was being taught, that was being read and reread and reinterpreted. and it's also been connected uh, to museum exhibits. And uh, every year there are commemorations of the 1968 student massacre, not just in Mexico City, but in other cities. So this book becomes connected to, you know, sometimes they're not really reenactments, but commemorations, there are films made. So it becomes kind of a part of a collective national cultural production, um, memorializing this event. So so it, it keeps having this afterlife in different generations. Uh,
1: during the 1985 earthquake, Poniatowska writes Nada Nadie, Las Voces del Temblor, after her friends Julio Scherer Garcia, the editor of Excelsior, and the author Carlos Monsivais told her that she had to do what she did best, that is to chronicle the mobilization as not everybody could do relief work. I want to draw a comparison here with another historian of Mexico, Arturo Warman, who, like her, created a space for non-heroic actors. He had written a book about the peasants of Morelos, y venimos a contra decir. She also creates new historical persona, like that of Evangelina Corona, who told President Miguel de la Madrid that he was lying. You tell us in the book that Mexican journalists always faced three taboos, the army, the Birkin of the Guadalupe and the President. The earthquake cracked those taboos. Do you also see her as a writer and activist who has contributed to the writing of history? Yes,
0: absolutely. I mean, that's why the book is called Stories That Make History. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, like Arturo Warman, you know, P- Ponia I mean, she has done these interviews with elites and she continued to do that, you know, with a lot of writers famous writers, social people, not very many formal politicians. Um, But yeah, she really lifts up the stories of, you know, people in Mexico who are not highlighted in the media, the poor, the marginalized, particularly women, indigenous people, um, the urban poor. Um, And, you know, she says, I'm not speaking, you know, they already have stories, they already have voices. You know, so there she already sees them as actors, but sort of placing them in historical, you know, in historical memory. And um Evangelina Corona is someone she got to know very well. Evangelina wrote her own book um, and, you know, they continue to be friends. So in many cases, when she sort of crossed that line into becoming an activist and a documentarian, as she did in 1985, because she worked with the seamstresses union. Uh, She was actually the treasurer of this group that supported this union for a while. And she really got to know Evangelina. Evangelina came over to her house, you know, so it's an an ongoing relationship. Um, And she continues, you know, to learn from her through time. And I think after 1968, you know, she really got out of her journalism being focused on these interviews, you know, and much more into sort of documenting activist movements um, at the same time that she's, she's writing novels. So she really um, opens up her, you know, political sphere. And, you know, she, in our conversations talks very actively about how much she learned from all these people, right. It was kind of a school for her um, and a part of Mexico. That was, that was very important. Um, So absolutely. Yeah, I think that she is broadening the sense of Mexican history. And particularly, you know, at that point in time, I mean, one of one of the things that was interesting for me, in writing the book was really doing a lot of reading about the history of journalism and publishing in Mexico. And, um, you know, the book was read by several historians, primarily of Mexico City. So one of the things you know, that they pushed on me on, and I'm glad that they did, um, you know, was to complicate the story, that it's not just, you know, that the state shut everything down all the time and there were no, you know, holes in that. In fact, there were, there were ways that in publishing inside of newspapers or through cultural supplements or other ways that these other stories were told that the pre did not have like a total hold on power And censorship. And I think by 1985, uh, with the earthquake, it's not only, you know, the telling of these stories, but it's also she and other people are also involved in founding new newspapers like La Jornada, right? So they're opening up this whole other public space in publishing for these stories to be circulated every day, because it's not just about, it's not just about Um, documenting and lifting up these voices and these actors, but they have to have a place to be heard, right? If they're, if they're not in, in, in public culture and public space, those stories, you know, they circulate, but it's very local. So I think that's another important piece of 1985 is really. The opening up of progressive and left media, it already existed in some spaces in a couple of Mexico City small papers and in regional papers, but, you know, really beginning to open up that space with Proceso, La Jornada, um, and since then other publications.
1: Thank you. Now, in the fourth chapter deals with Elena Poniatowska's trek to the Lacandon Forest with her kids and her meeting with subcomandante Marcos after he wrote starry-eyed letters to her. Do you sometimes think her unconventional life and emotional approach to journalism helped to bolster her stature in a context where people were tired of political chicanery? Yes, you
0: know, yeah, I mean with Marcos one of the, you know, doing a close reading of their conversations and talking to her, he's very suspicious of her, right? Uh, because she's an elite, she, you know, has this background. So he's constantly playing, you know, he's calling her princess and making, you know, he he's playing this verbal game. But I think actually where they engaged her, you know, her and Marcos at least for a time was around writing, right? Because Subcomandante Marcos is an extremely talented writer as well in terms of playing with his audience, bringing them in. Um, And I think she was always interested in that aspect of him. So politics was a big theme, and especially gender politics, as I point out in the book. But I think both of them understood maybe the power of writing Right. To bring people in politically because Marco Marcos was writing, you know, at the time he was writing these communiques that were published in La Jornada um, and many people were reading them. Um, So I think Elena engaged with him maybe in some ways that other writers didn't. I don't know. I didn't study those other writers, but I do think not only with him, but pretty much with about anyone her kind of directness, almost, um, you know, freshness. Uh, it's not really naivete, but because she's incredibly intelligent, but just kind of being very open allowed people to talk to her. You know, it's a particular kind. It's a particular kind of emotional intelligence um, that gets communicated, sort of face to face, and invites people in. No matter who they are, you know, and I think the other comment that she made that's really important about the incredible things that people told her, especially, you know, for example, in uh, in the middle of the earthquake is, you know, she says when there is an emergency and people are desperate they will talk to you in ways that they won't, you know, when daily life is going on and it's going just fine. So she, you know, she was very aware of
1: of that. Now, in the fifth chapter, uh, you discuss Poniatowska's book, *Amanecer en el Sócalo*, and this describes the planton, the occupation of the Sokalo by all those who believe that his election had been stolen. You also describe the dealings of your protagonist with Cautemo Cardenas and Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these two were ideologically on the same side, but politically at odds. How did Elena maneuver in such a situation?
0: Well, I think it was, you know, that was a, and we're speaking now, you know, in 2021 when Lopez Obrador on his third try is, is elected president, you know, so we're always, we're always speaking with hindsight. Um, But at the time, um, you know, really, uh, he was colliding with Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas in the same party. Um, And Cárdenas really believed there was a different path, you know, to change. He wanted electoral reform. He, you know, he wanted to do things in the system. He did not want to occupy and send people out into the streets and have, you know, the legitimate president by acclamation. That was not, you know, that was not his strategy. Um, And I think he, you know, Cardenas had some other moments when he had to decide whether or not to send people out in the streets and what that would mean, you know, in the the 80s uh, when also he, you know, he ran for president. Um, So I, I... you know, I, I haven't had super detailed conversations with Elena about this moment, um, but I you can see in the writing, in the book, in the, you know, what you said is based on my interpretation of that moment, and then we did have a lot of conversations about what it was like to be in the plantone. Um, you know, yeah, she's really, you know, in between these two, and you can see her respect for cardliness, and her disbelief that no one, um, you know, that Lopez Obrador and Jesus Rodriguez said nobody was interested in what Cardenas had to say. Um, and, and she was kind of shocked by that. And she was shocked when people booed her when she read from his letter. Right. But I think and she also expresses in this book which i i think very i I haven't seen very i haven't seen another person sort of interpret this but she really questions this process of a national democratic convention you know where someone reads someone uh uh, reads uh something to be approved and then you say yes or no by acclamation and then you move on you know she really questioned that kind of process um Which, in a sense, I would say might foreshadow some of the things that people are saying now about Lopez Obrador, you know, in terms of process, in terms of input, in terms of, uh, you know, really being a very strong opinionated person who wants his plan to go through as his plan. Um, But she, you know, at the time, she's a very, very strong supporter Of López Obrador. She devoted uh, more than a year of her her life to his campaign. Uh, She traveled all over Mexico. I think she learned a lot, but it also really brought her into formal politics and how it works. And that book has a lot of important insights into challenges in that system and looking at, you know, really questioning,
1: you know, participation in formal politics. Let's talk about another episode that has shaken Mexico in the past few years. What do you see as the importance of Poniatowska as a political actor and someone who has opened space for the families of the disappeared students of Ayotzinapa and others? Well, that
0: that's a that's an interesting question because it sort of connects historically to work that she's done you know, since the 1960s, um, you know, she wrote about other social movements, about, you know, people who disappeared during the Dirty War, uh, worked with the organization Eureka. Um, So she, you know, she's been connected to movements of the disappeared, including in Guatemala, um, through the disappearance of Aida Fopan. So uh, it's very consistent, I think, with the past. And one of the the things that you see not only in uh, the way that she opened up space for the families of the disappeared students, but in the past is sort of using her public performances as ways to make people conscious of these issues, you know, by saying the names at the Guadalajara Book Fair or bringing at the Guadalajara Book Fair people, you know, uh, family members on stage so they can speak, you know, in, in the slot that's sort of for her latest book, you know, she's not promoting her latest book. She's bringing these families up. Um, and she's always done that and, you know, continues to do that. So I think that's recognition on her part, um, that she is a political actor. Um, and one of the, when we began this book project, um, many, many years ago, when I was interviewing her more than 10 years ago for the first time over a couple of days, um, you know, we t- we talked about her life a lot and then kind of digested it. And uh, I began to think that no one has really written about her and the kind of work and writing that she and other people do as a political actor. Um, and that's when that theme of you know here is a person who is a political actor you know which it's great to talk about her literature her novels literary criticism all the prizes she's won but she's been doing something else really really unique um and using not only writing but what i would call political performances and other sort of public culture spaces um to really bring, you know, the left and progressive politics to the, you know, to the mainstream um, in Mexico. So I think through those examples that I give about uh, Yotsinapa, it's very clear to me and probably a lot of other people that, you know, this this is, she's using a literary platform to open up political space so that these stories are heard to, you know, to make people aware and hopefully have them act. And unfortunately the, most of the, you know, a couple the remains of a couple of students have been identified, but the parents are still waiting for answers. A couple, some of the parents have died since that happened. You know, so these families are still um, waiting for answers and they're still working and they're, you know, there's commissions and there's things happening. But that was in 2014. It's going to be, you know, it's been seven years.
1: Uh, what kind of future does the writing form known as La Cronica have in Mexico, in your opinion? Well, that's an
0: interesting question. You you know, I would think from the way that cronicas have been received, not only those of Elena Poniatosca, but of vice of, of many other people, and there are, you know, younger writers uh, like Juan Villoros and other people you know, working in this form. But what's interesting, a lot of them write novels, write cronicas as books, and are journalists, right? So they they work these different genres together. Um, people, you know, people continue to read. Um, you know, we could ask, like, what's the future of the book anywhere in a you know sort of material form? Um, but I I I think there's something really important in Mexican culture about this form and about the form that these stories take, you know, and how they connect to people. So I I do believe it will continue. I think that, um, you know, spoken word, there's just so many different forms that crónicas might take now. They might not all be textual because of social media. Um, There's a lot of different ways that this format travels not just in books or, you know, physical newspapers. Um, But the ways that things can circulate are much more uh, rapid uh, and widespread. So I I would say, you know, I would bet on a good future for uh, future writers of Kronikas. And I'm excited to see uh, young people
1: um, writing
0: in this form um, and what we have coming.
1: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Stephen, for telling us an untold story about a legendary Mexican woman. We might have read Elena Poniatowska, but most of us didn't know about her. You have reflected on the beautiful and strong parts of this woman who beat the odds in her life. I recommend this book to all uh, Latin Americanists and especially to Mexicanists. And I hope it also becomes part of the school curricula in the U.S., because it's a book written about another personality and a tale that deserves to be told. And I'm so, and the writing is riveting as well. And I'm so happy that you've taken the time to inform us in this manner. Thank you very much for being here.
0: Thank you very much, many, for the opportunity.